Hello everyone, and welcome to the January 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A federal bankruptcy judge ruled that a worker who used his workers' compensation settlement and Medicare set-aside account funds to buy real estate and a new truck will not have to include those items as assets in his Chapter 7 bankruptcy. A 44-year-old Jesus Orellano broke his hip while working in 2010. He settled a workers' comp claim for $225,000 as well as more than $72,000 placed into a Medicare set-aside account. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services advises workers' comp payers to set up Medicare set-aside accounts to pay for future medical costs for a beneficiary's injury. But after receiving the settlement and Medicare set-aside funds, Mr. Arellano used the money to buy a Ford truck and two real estate properties in New York, Pennsylvania. Mr. Arellano later sold one of the properties to his brother, who was supposed to pay him $1,200 a month. Mr. Arellano filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy protection, but asked for the truck, the two properties, and remaining money from his workers' comp settlement to be exempted from creditors in the bankruptcy proceedings. The bankruptcy trustee objected to his exemption request, contending that bankruptcy laws did not allow Ariana to exempt property that was the proceeds of a workers' compensation claim. The federal bankruptcy court judge found that his properties and workers' comp settlement funds should be exempted from bankruptcy proceedings. The judge said, the workers' comp settlement funds are reasonably necessary to support Mr. Arellano's family. Additionally, the judge said that his brother's payments are sufficiently modest as to have a negligible impact on Arellano's bankruptcy case. The judge also found that his Medicare set-aside fund should not be included in bankruptcy proceedings because it was slated for medical expenses even though he didn't use it for that purpose. And... It's not property of the bankruptcy estate. The set-aside is not property of the bankruptcy estate and, as such, may not be administered by the trustee for the benefit of creditors. The Court of Appeal refused to order an insurance company's arbitration request in a case involving premium payments with an employer and found that the arbitration clause was defective. Here's what happened in the unpublished case, Aero Recycling Solutions versus Applied Underwriters. Aero Recycling Solutions Incorporated and Aero Environmental Solutions Incorporated is a metal recycler. Aero provided payroll information to Patriot Risk and Insurance Services, an insurance broker, for the purpose of obtaining a proposal for a new policy. Patriot replied with a producer's quote, and the estimated annual premium of nearly one quarter million dollars. Arrow executed a request to bind this policy and later received a policy and related agreements with the insuring entities. Arrow alleges in a civil complaint it later filed against the carrier and broker that the actual amount billed for the first year was approximately 400 
$490,000, which was nearly double the estimated annual premium. Arrow alleged that it would not have purchased the workers' compensation insurance if it had known of this inaccuracy. However, the request to bind documents signed by Arrow included an arbitration provision. The words initial here appeared under a box next to the arbitration provision. That box was actually empty and contained no initials in the copy of the request to bind attached to the complaint. Later, Arrow received as part of its policy package a reinsurance participation agreement which included an arbitration provision. The defendants filed a motion to compel arbitration and stay the trial court proceedings. The trial court denied the motion to compel arbitration and the defendants appealed. The Court of Appeal affirmed the denial of the motion. A party moving to compel arbitration bears the burden of providing by a preponderance of evidence the existence of an arbitration agreement. An officer of Arrow stated in his declaration that the box next to the arbitration provision in the request to bind that he signed was left blank and did not contain his initials. His assistant declared that she sent the signed request to bind to Patriot and that the initials were not present on the document that she provided. Defendants claimed the document they received had the box checked, but the officer claimed that the handwriting was not his and the defendant's copy was initialed by someone else. The defendants, as the parties moving to compel arbitration, had the burden of producing evidence sufficient to establish the existence of an arbitration agreement. The defendants failed to present such evidence. The Court of Appeal concluded that the declarations of Arrow's officers and his assistant constitute substantial evidence supporting the implied finding that Arrow never agreed to the arbitration provision in the request to bind and that, therefore, there was no such arbitration agreement. And now our fraud report. A three-month investigation ended with the arrests of a doctor's office manager, a pharmacy technician, and two other suspects in connection with a prescription drug ring that put more than 50,000 prescription narcotic pills on the streets of Modesto. Authorities allege that blank prescription pads were being stolen from a pain management clinic forged by members of the ring and filled at a Modesto CVS pharmacy. Most of the prescriptions were for highly addictive opiate-based drugs such as oxycodone and hydrocodone. Hydrocodone has a street value of $3 to $5 per pill, and oxycodone can sell for up to $40 for an 80 milligram pill. Investigators received an anonymous tip that nearly 300 fraudulent prescriptions had been filled using six fictitious names and eight real names. Search warrants were served at the CVS Pharmacy, Central Valley Pain Management, and three homes in Modesto. Officers seized more than 2,800 prescription pills, two loaded firearms, a high-capacity magazine, $1,000 in cash, and several fraudulent and blank prescription pads. Arrested were 27-year-old Christina Martinez, 30-year-old Lance Wilson, and 43-year-old Mona Chavarin, all of Modesto, and 31-year-old Lanelli Nunez of Houston. 
Shavarin is a licensed pharmacy technician. Dr. Patrick Rhodes, owner of Central Valley Pain Management, said that he is in shock over the arrest of his office manager, Linelli Nunez. Nunez had worked at a Central Valley Pain Management for a number of years, starting up analyzing drug tests, advancing to become Rhodes' medical assistant, then being promoted to office manager. All of the suspects were arrested on 286 felony counts of various fraud-related crimes. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB has released an update to its analysis of indemnity claim frequency, which was originally published in 2012 and last updated in December 2013. And the report concludes that claim frequency continues its relentless increase in California. WCIRB researchers explored potential causes for the increases that have persisted since 2010 and that differ from the claim frequency experience of other states. A number of factors, including increases in cumulative injury claims, contribute to the higher numbers. Approximately 13% of indemnity claims are estimated to involve a cumulative injury in 2013, compared to only 8% in 2005 to the 2007 period. The growth in cumulative injury claims beginning in 2009 has been concentrated in claims involving more serious injuries and multiple injured body parts. Both of the proportion of cumulative injury claims involving indemnity benefits and the proportion involving injuries to multiple body parts have increased significantly since 2010. Both the proportion of cumulative injury claims involving multiple insurers and the proportion involving attorney representation has increased in recent years. And approximately 40% of claims, despite long-standing statutory limitation on the compensability of post-termination claims, were reported post-termination. Shifts to a less hazardous composition of industries in California have historically driven claim frequency downward, but the recent economic recovery in higher hazard industries such as construction and manufacturing has had the opposite impact. In 2013, rather than dampening claim frequency, shifting industrial mix is increasing claim frequency by approximately 1%. In, 2002, in 2010, increase in frequency was greatest in industries that were most impacted by the recession. The increase has been concentrated in the Los Angeles area, while some other California regions showed modest declines. By comparison, the Bay Area declined by 7% over the same period. The Los Angeles area also has experienced significantly higher numbers of cumulative injury claims and claims involving multiple body parts than other regions of California. The full analysis of changes in indemnity claim frequency for the January 2015 update report are available in the research and analysis section of the WCIRB website. 18 states, including California, have now enacted reforms to limit the prices paid to doctors for prescriptions they write and dispense. But a new WCIRB study finds that physician dispensers in Illinois and California discovered loopholes in the laws. If a new strength of an existing drug comes to a market, the manufacturer of that new strength can assign a new average wholesale price. Often, the AWP of the new strength was much higher than the other dosages set by original manufacturers. Take Flexerol, for example. 
It's a muscle relaxant used to treat skeletal muscle conditions such as pain or injury prior to 2012. 7.5 milligram flex roller was rarely seen in the market. The average prices paid for 5 and 10 milligram flex roll, the two common strengths, ranged from 35 cents to 70 cents per pill. Since the introduction of the 7.5 milligram product in 2012, the market share of physician dispensed flexural of 7.5 milligrams increased from 0 to 47% when it became the strength of the drug most commonly dispensed by physicians. The average price paid for the new strength was $2.90 to $3.45 per pill. It is likely that financial incentives drove some physicians to choose this strength for their patients, although this study uses data from two large states. It raises questions for all states where physician dispensing prices are regulated. Insurers now use aggressive tactics to extract a steep price discounts from the world's biggest drug makers, even for the newest medications. Big Pharma executives acknowledged the depth of change during public presentations and media interviews at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. Drug makers have long relied on their ability to charge whatever they deemed appropriate in the United States, the world's most expensive healthcare system. Industry advocates have defended those prices as a way to recoup the billions of dollars spent on experimental drugs that fail and to offset discount offer, discounts offered overseas. But now some say there has definitely been increased price competition. AstraZenza warned investors that the pressure exerted by health insurers has expanded from medicines used to treat common maladies to the specialized fields like cancer, where drug makers have been able to charge their highest prices. Many say the tide shifted with a campaign by insurers and pharmacy benefits, companies against Gilead Sciences, $84,000 hepatitis C treatment known as Savaldi. The drug represented the first effective cure for hepatitis C and quickly raked in billions of dollars in sales. Savaldi's cost is based on a 12-week treatment regimen and amounts to $1,000 a pill. Express Scripts said it sought opportunities for discounts in new cancer medications and was looking closely at a new class of cholesterol fighting drugs aimed at millions of patients who can't tolerate or get enough benefits from widely used statins. Amgen Incorporated a, and Regeneron Pharmaceutical Incorporated are two of the companies racing to bring the new cholesterol treatments to the markets. When pressed on how they could counter the growing pressure from insurers, large drug makers say that they are relying on strategies long employed in the marketplace. They're focusing research on diseases that don't have adequate treatments and finding ways to differentiate their products from competitors. But some industry experts believe they will have to become far more selective, even when entering a new treatment era. Even for the most new, promising classes of medications, there are often three or four companies pursuing similar development programs. Workers' compensation claim frequency for health care workers declined by about 1% in 2014, but comp claim severity among medical workers increased 2% last year, as health systems say they struggle with safety procedures. The findings were published in Aon's annual health care workers' compensation barometer report. 
42% of healthcare employers surveyed said their largest workplace safety concern is patient management, which includes lifting and handling of patients. About 74% of respondents said they have a safe patient handling program in place, while 26% said they have no such program. Home health care aid occupation has the highest average indemnity cost among workers' compensation claims. The report said that healthcare systems with successful safe patient handling programs have found it can significantly reduce the number of employee injuries and lost workdays. Safe patient handling has been associated with not only fewer injuries, but also a decrease in the severity of injuries. Among healthcare employers that have safe handling programs, 88% said they are concerned about such sustainability of such initiatives. Any program should follow a defined process and strive to continually improve. Among the 11 states profiled, California has the highest projected loss rate for 2015. Tennessee has the lowest projected loss rate for 2015. Companies are increasingly penalizing workers who decline to join wellness programs, embracing an element of President Barack Obama's health care law. Obamacare raised the financial incentives that employers are allowed to offer workers for participating in workplace wellness programs and achieving results. The incentives can be either rewards or penalties. Up to 30% of healthcare insurance premiums, deductibles, and other costs, and even more if the programs target smoking. Among the two-thirds of large companies using such incentives, almost a quarter are imposing financial penalties on those who opt out. For some companies, just signing up for a wellness program is not enough. They are instead linking financial incentives to specific goals such as losing weight, reducing cholesterol, or keeping blood glucose under control. The number of business imposing, businesses imposing such outcomes-based wellness plans is expected to double this year to 46%. Incentives typically take the form of cash payments or reduction in employee deductibles. Penalties include higher premiums and lower company contributions for out-of-pocket health costs. Financial incentives, many companies say, are critical to encouraging workers to participate in wellness programs, which executives believe will save money in the long run. But there is almost no evidence that workplace wellness programs significantly reduce those costs. Wellness programs cost around $100 to $300 per worker per year, but generally save far less than that in medical costs. That's why the financial penalties are important to companies. They boost corporate profits by levying fines that outweigh any savings from wellness programs. Most large employees are, employers are self-insured, meaning they pay medical claim out of revenue. As a result, wellness penalties also accrue to the bottom line. The DWC will administer the next Qualified Medical Evaluator Competency Examination on Saturday, April 25, 2015. Physicians who wish to take the exam must submit a completed original application for appointment as a QME. If an application was submitted for the October 18, 2014 exam, a new one is not required. But applicants must send all other documentation and fees required and complete the registration for the QME competency examination. The application must be postmarked by March 12, 2015 in order to qualify for this exam. Qualified registrants will receive a confirmation letter along with a candidate information booklet. All physicians are required to pay a non-refundable, non-rollover, $125 fee to sit for any upcoming QME examination. 
Before appointment as a QME, the physician must also complete a 12-hour course in disability evaluation report, writing approved by the administrative director. The DWC will assess an annual QME fee after having successfully passed a QME competency exam in order to activate a QME status. And in other news, Floyd Scarron and Kelly is pleased to announce its 2015 Northern California Employment Law Conference set for January 30th at the Hilton Garden Inn in Emeryville. Keynote speaker will be Dale Brodsky, council member of the California Fair Employment and Housing Council. The conference will cover important workplace topics related to the interactive process, disability leave, pregnancy leave, the Affordable Care Act, workers' compensation, and the crossover issues related to the Fair Employment Act, and much more. Some of the topics will help in understanding the numerous and often overlapping California leave laws. There will be an overview in the proposed regulatory changes to the California Family Rights Act and guidance on preventing a straightforward workers' compensation case from turning into a FIHA nightmare. You can learn how to master the complexities of pregnancy leave, how much time is required by law, and why it could be more than seven months. And an overview of new California employment laws in effect as of January 2015. This conference will include helpful information for employers, supervisors, managers, claims adjusters, risk managers, attorneys, and any other professional associated with human resources and employment law. This program has been approved for seven hours of general recertification credit hours. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, and Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And drop by again next week for more news.